The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. This morning we're reading from Exodus chapter 32, and um, I encourage you all to follow along. It'll be posted right behind me on the screen, but also there are pews, or excuse me, pews. There are Bibles under your pews. Um, We're going to start in verse 15 and go through 24, and then we're going to skip down to verse 30 and 30 to 32. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not this it is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is God's word. I'm going to pray for us real quick, and we're going to get rolling. We're all, when the, uh, going to be the whole chapter of Exodus 32, so put your seatbelt on. Father, I pray that uh, just as uh, Jamin said, you have been here already with us this morning. I pray you would continue to be here with us. pray you would guide our time in your word, that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would lift up the name of Jesus in our midst, that you would turn the heart of every person that's here to you. God, arrest my heart to you this morning. God, stir our affections for you. If there's any person, and I'm sure there is in this room, that has not placed their faith and trust in you, has not been born again of the Spirit, I pray that that would happen this morning, even while we are opening your word. God, meet with us and let us know that we have met with you. I ask it humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen. So our question this morning is, What do you do when the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket around you? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're the sane, the lone sane person and everybody around you is all going crazy? 
You ever find yourself in that situation? Uh, it could be a certain fad that's going on or uh, a certain show everybody's watching that you just don't get or a certain politician that's catching on you don't understand or a certain viewpoint or whatever. You just you find yourself standing around on an on a issue, on a subject, in some sort of matter and everybody around you seems just going to hell in a handbasket. You just can't even figure out what are they even thinking. What do you do when it feels like you're the only person the only person who's sane. What do you do when everybody around you seems to be seeking anything and everything except God and you feel like you alone or some very small number of people alone are following after him and everybody else are running their own way? What do you do? How do you respond when the entire country around you has seemingly lost faith in him? What do you do? Uh, I don't think it's very difficult to connect the idea that that's the situation that we kind of live in now, in our current culture, in our current climate, but it's not unique. It's not an American thing. It's not an American 21st century kind of thing. It is a human nature kind of thing. We see it right here in the book of Exodus the book of Exodus up to this point, up to chapter 31, has been filled with amazing things alike that you and I have never ever seen before, unless I'm very mistaken about you and your, your personal history with God. Moses was walking in the desert just watching some sheep and he sees a fire burning in a bush on the side of the mountain that doesn't consume the bush and he goes up and God speaks to him audibly out of the bush and gives him a job to do. He goes back to the country of Egypt, which by the way, he was a banished prince from. He goes back to the country of Egypt, the most powerful country on the face of the earth and he goes in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth and he says, hey, you know all these slaves and free labor that you have, how about you let them go because this God that you've never heard of who I serve is said to let them go or else. And Pharaoh's like, I choose the or else option. And out of the or else option, Pharaoh bites off more than he can chew. God shows up for this ragtag group of slaves in the middle of the most powerful country in the face of the earth and he delivers them by a mighty hand. 10 plagues roll through the country until the entire country is brought to its knees and tells the people of Israel, you've got to get out of here. Miraculous signs that he, sent, that he uses to send them out. Not only that, when they get out there, God leads them by a different way and he gets, traps them. God's presence leads them a different way. He traps them in front of the Red Sea. You guys have seen the movie, right? He traps them in front of the Red Sea. They're stuck. They don't know what to do. And God, when the Egyptian army is following them, God opens up the sea. And they walk through the sea on dry land. And not only that, but then when their enemies pursue them, the waters come crashing back down and consume their enemies. They beat one of the armies of the most powerful country in the face of the earth without lifting a single sword or spear. Not only that, but they get out there and then they're hungry and they don't have anything to eat and God rains down like magic heaven bread every single morning for them to eat, to gather off the ground. This manna that tastes like some sort of like wafer with honey kind of deal. They would pick up off the ground and they would eat that to provide sustenance for them in the middle of the desert. They get thirsty and God causes a rock, a rock to pour out water enough for the thousands and hundreds of thousands of Israel 
Israelites to drink in the middle of the desert. And not only that, but then he says, I'm gonna lead you through the desert, and here's how I'm gonna lead you. There's gonna be a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that's gonna lead you. They get hungry, they complain about the magic heaven bread that's falling down on the ground every morning, and they say, we would like some meat, which I can relate to, and all of a sudden, this whole flock of quail comes and just lands right in the middle of that camp, and they just have to like, pick the quail up and kill them and eat them. The easiest hunting that you've ever done. God provides for them. And then they gather around Mount Sinai and the mountain looks like it's on fire. It's shaking. The smoke is going up. There's lightning bolts going on as God meets with them in the middle of the desert. God meets with them as Moses goes up on the mountain and talks with him. All of this has happened. And now Moses goes up on top of this mountain and there's no lightnings and no fire and no smoke at this point. It's just Moses up on the mountain. And he's been gone for 40 days. If you've ever experienced as a parent or maybe as a kid, the parents leave and you know how long they're going to be gone. And while the, while the parents are gone, things can get a little bit crazy. And you know that feeling, uh, it's not really related to the story, but you know that feeling when like, the, the mom calls and she's on her way home and you realize like, we have made a giant mess or we're doing a bunch of things we're not supposed to do. We have to clean this, all st- this stuff back up again. Well, when the cat's away, the mice will play. When Moses is gone and God's not making the mountain crash and thunder and quake and back and forth, and all of a sudden the people think, what has happened? And they have a desire for a God who's now, who's disappeared and Moses disappeared, they have a desire for a God they can touch, a God they can feel, a God they can see and a God they can understand because this God of Moses is now missing and they don't know what's going on. And they, if you see in verses one through four, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, this is verse one through four, chapter 32. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Aaron is Moses' brother, he's the priest, he's the second in command, he's in charge while Moses is gone. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. This is the gold that God would have provided for them as they looted Egypt on the way out by just asking their neighbors, hey, send me some gold with me, and they they, they did it. So all the people took and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, little g, multiple s. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See, again, it's not an Israelite story, just as it's not an American story for us to worship anything except the God of heaven and earth. Because we all want to worship a God that we can touch and feel and understand. We thirst for a God that we can see and feel. We demand a God that fits our image of what God should be like. See, these Israelites had been living in Egypt for over 400 years, and they had gotten used to these Egyptian gods who were gods that they could see and understand, these idols that they could worship. They could see them and touch them. They could say, this is God, but this God of Moses, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he, they can't see him or touch him or feel him because he's bigger than all that, but they just all they know is that they can't see him, and so they're going back to the ways before, and you or I all 
always do that. People always do that. We want a God as fashioned in the image that you and I understand. That's the God that we want to worship. We want to craft, not just accept a God in the image of our own choosing. We want to craft an image of a God in our own image and choosing. Not, because God comes to us and he says that, look, this is who I say I am and you must accept this. But we say we want a God that we can relate to and that we can accept. We, so we craft gods, lots of little gods. Now the American way that we do this isn't by crafting golden bulls, golden calves. The way that we do it is we find other things that we can worship. You and I, we can understand because God seems to be invisible and the, you and I haven't seen Jesus. We haven't seen him die on the cross. We didn't see him rise again. You and I can understand that if I have X amount of money in my bank account, then I am worth more, because this is the American ideal, then I am worth more than somebody that has less money in their bank account. You and I can understand if I have a number of letters behind my name because of my awesome education, then I can feel superior to those who have less letters behind their name. You and I understand that if we have a a job that's more prestigious or more looked up to, that we are better than those who do not. If I drive a nicer car, as simple as that may be, if I drive a nicer car or live in a bigger or better house, then I can understand that I am somewhat better than somebody else. If I look better, this is really one of the biggest idols in America, if I look better, if I'm sexier than you, if I'm hotter than you, if I get more people's heads to turn when I walk by than you, then I feel better than you because I can understand that. I can get my head around that. And you or I, just like all of American society, are just as likely to craft and make gods just like the Israelites did. See, the deception, even though we look at this and we say, man, it's kind of stupid to make a golden bull and then worship it after God has brought you out of Egypt, but this deception is very subtle. You see, that happens after this is that Aaron says, he tries to redeem the situation. We're gonna get to him in a second. He tries to redeem the situation. He says, uh, I'm gonna make this golden bull, but we're gonna call him Yahweh. We're gonna call him the God that brought us out of Egypt. And so it looks like they're still kind of worshiping God while they worship the idol. And you and I can do that with things that are Christian as well. If you're a church person, you're like, hey, Randy, I'm okay in all those examples that you just gave me, the sexiness and the clothes and the money and the jobs. I'm okay at all that, but, but we have our own little idols, the Christian idols, the religious idols that make us feel better. If I sinned less than somebody else did, or I'm not as bad a sinner as they are, or I read my Bible more, or I go to church more, or I come early to set up, or I'm there every morning, every morning for church, and I'm there every week at community group, and I'm, I only listen to Caleb, I don't listen to that nasty music, and I, I, I don't go to R-rated, we all have whatever it is that we, the boxes that we check, that we know, they're the Christian, they're the good idols, that it makes it look like we're worshiping Yahweh, but we're still worshiping something else. We're finding security or identity or value through other than God himself. So how do we respond to that? 
If we're in the middle of a society, and maybe you and I are guilty, absolutely you and I are guilty of ourselves, how do we respond to that? To a society that's worshiping everything and seemingly forgotten God and going the opposite way? How do we respond to that? You guys know the culture in America is shifting and has shifted from what it was 50 years, 100 years ago. And here's what Americans are prone to do. We're gonna get here in a minute. American, American Christians are prone to complain and whine about the shifting of culture rather than focus on what's most important. How do we respond when it seems like everybody is going to hell in a handbasket around us? There's three ways we see them in this passage. We can accommodate, we can judge, or we can humbly intercede. Number one, we can accommodate like Aaron does here. So the people call out to Aaron and they say, hey, hey, Moses has been missing. We need a God. We want you to fashion a God for us. And Aaron should have known better. Aaron was with Moses through the whole deal, leading them out of Egypt. He's heard God, the voice of God himself. He was made a priest by God himself. He knows the deal. But Aaron feels pressured by the people. We don't know, we get the feeling from the story that maybe the people were very angry and he was afraid of them. He didn't want to cross them, afraid how they were going to react and respond if he didn't, he didn't agree to do what they wanted him to do. And so he goes and he fashions this bull and he tells them, he tries to make it okay by saying, hey, I'm going to make this altar that's like an altar to God in front of it and I'm going to say, hey, we're worshiping Yahweh by worshiping this idol, but they were already breaking one of the Ten Commandments by doing so. So they get up there, and Aaron, they, they beg him, Aaron to do this, and Aaron does it. And Moses is up on the mountain. He's meeting with God. In the middle of his meeting with God, God says, you need to go down the mountain. Sort of like the uh, one, one time I, I was not supposed to be uh, I think I had a, I don't know if it was a bicycle or a moped. I lived out way out in the country, as I've told you guys before. I lived way out in the country, and uh, there was a, the nearest store, convenience store, was miles away. And it was the middle of the summer, in the middle of the day, and I thought, you know what I would really like to do? I want to ride this moped miles and miles away to this convenience store and get like a pack of candy and something cold to drink. And I started out on my quest to go to this convenience store, and I'm driving and driving and driving, and a moped does not go very fast, and it was a long way to go, and I was driving, 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 and finally, I got like two-thirds of the way there, I'm like, this is taking way too long, it's too hot, I turned around and went back home, but by the time I got home, somebody, I don't know who it was, miles away, saw me ride past their house on a moped, called my mom to tell them that I was going out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, driving around, and by the time I get home, I'm in trouble, because somebody called and said, hey, he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing. I was angry at that unnamed, if I saw that neighbor right now, I'd just walk up and just smack him right in the face. I didn't even make it to the convenience store. I didn't even get the pack of Skittles and the Coke in order to get in trouble for. I got in trouble for not even making it to the goal. Now God's meeting with, Aaron, with Moses on top of the mountain. He says, the people that you left behind, they've already forgotten. Moses goes down and he takes these, the two tablets the Ten Commandments that God himself wrote on the stone tablets with his own finger. We don't even know what that meant, what that means, what that looked like, but it was amazing. And he takes these tablets down the mountain 
And as they get down the mountain, they hear a sound coming from the camp. It sounds like a war, a battle. That's what Joshua thinks is going on. And Moses says, no, it's not a battle you hear. There's a party going on down there. And he gets down there and the people in the 40 days that he's been gone have totally forgotten the God that brought them out of Egypt. And he goes to Aaron and he says, what in the world have you done? And Aaron says, verse 21, Aaron says, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Verse 22, you know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and listen to how he even phrases it. And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It sounds like I'm talking to my son Landon. What in the world happened in here? I, I have no idea. I just walked in and it was already like this. The first way we can respond when the world around us is going to hell in a handbasket is we can accommodate them like Aaron did. We can, first of all, we can cave to pressure. And some of us in this room, we're prone to do that. It's just too hard to be different from the people around us, isn't it? It's too hard to be worshiping a different God than they are worshiping. To have a different set of values and uh, the heart, a different understanding of what the world is about than the people around us. And it's just easier to go along with the flow and to accommodate them. And God, I'm worshiping you in my heart, but outside, I'm just, it's just too hard to be different. And that's what we think Aaron was doing here. God, I'm still worshiping you in my heart. I believe in Yahweh, but I'm just gonna go with the flow to keep people happy, to keep from making waves. We We don't want to make waves. I remember the feeling, I grew up in church, I remember being a a Christian teenager, and I I remember going outside and praying and whining and complaining over and over again, God, I'm just so tired of being different. But we deal with that whether you're a teenager or a kid or an adult. You just don't want to be different, and it's just easier to go with the flow. We cave to pressure like Aaron or we enable the people around us like Aaron. Aaron said, I'm worshiping you, God, in my heart, but I'm going to help these people construct this idol, and I am enabling them to worship something else other than you. Just because, again, I don't want to make waves, and I want people to be happy with me. You know what you're worshiping? If, If you're like that, you're not worshiping God. You and I aren't worshiping God when we do that. We're worshiping the will and the favor and the opinion of man around us. We would rather them be pleased with us than God be pleased with us. And we'd rather God to be displeased with us than them to be displeased with us. What he tried to do here is he tried to salvage the worship of God by associating it with a legitimate worship of Yahweh. Imitating orthodoxy or right worship, a right practice of God through idolatry. And we do all that all the time. The church is guilty of that. 
the church itself, a lot of churches, our church deals with this, uh, not just individually, but corporately. Like, we just don't want to go make waves. We don't want to say that what the Bible says about certain things, and so we go with the flow in the name of reaching people. Hey, if we say that God says this is wrong and this is right and that we can't worship anything other than him, then it's gonna offend people and it's gonna turn them off, and so we'll, we'll make that a little bit less so that we can get them in. And maybe that's sometimes born out of a good desire, but it never accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish. Because you're not winning them to the gospel. You're not winning them to the God that made heaven and earth and tells us who he is. You're causing them to worship a God that's made in their own image. And you're helping them to construct it. We cave to pressure, we enable them, and we excuse. (laughs) Aaron's like, I don't know what Aaron is thinking in this. Hey, hey, I'll accommodate them for a while and Moses will come down and he'll make it right, right? Like somebody else can come along and deal with this. I don't wanna deal with this issue. But just like parenting, that just doesn't work as a parent. I'm, I've, Meg and I are young parents with an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and what we have, one of the things that we've learned is like, like nobody else is gonna come along and fix the kids, Right? Nobody else is gonna come along and discipline them and guide them and love them like Megan and I do. It's our job to do it. And when you and I have people that are in our sphere of influence, if we help them to enable a wrong view of God, it's like waiting for somebody else to come and parent our kids. It just doesn't work. We try to play both sides Aaron's like, hey, I, I'm with you. These people, you, you know about them. But then when he's with the people, he's like, hey, this Moses, I don't know where he is either. We'll make this calf shirt thing. He tries to play both sides because, again, he wants to be popular with the people around him rather than God himself. One thing we do when it seems like the world is going to hell in a handbasket around us is we accommodate the people around us. We accommodate the culture around us. That's not the only way that we respond. Some of us are more prone to respond, not to accommodate, but we judge. We can judge them. Now, here's the interesting part of this. If you've read all of chapter 32, you know like there's some crazy stuff in this chapter that was not a part of the scripture reading this morning because we couldn't read the whole chapter. When Moses comes down, in verse 19 And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Uh, Some people might say that he was acting impetuously here, but I don't think he was. I think he was making a point to them. Then he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. They'll taste the bitterness of their own worship of the wrong God. Then look down in verse, well, we're not gonna read it. You can look down in verse 25 through 29 for the sake of time. So what Moses does then is Moses stands in front of the tent of meeting where he met with God and he says, all right, everybody who has disobeyed God and rebelled against God while I am gone, we have to purge them from the camp because we can't allow any evil, anybody that worships anybody except the one true God, we can't allow them to dwell with us in this camp. And so here's what we're gonna do. Whoever's on God's side, come with me and bring a sword. 
and the Levites, who are the priests, they come and gather around Moses, and then they go out and they kill every single person who had been a rebel against God. They killed thousands of people that day. Some of us, we don't just accommodate sin or the people around us. We judge. I see this more often in the current religious culture in America. I think American Christians are a bunch of complainers. We see a culture that has changed in the last 50 years. And what we do is instead of, instead of anything else, we would rather stand on our own moral high ground and complain about how the culture around us is going to hell in a handbasket. We'd rather find the other people who believe like we do, whether online or in person, and complain about culture and complain about people. Complain about how we've lost our moral compass. How nobody cares about God anymore. How nobody's attending church anymore. How whatever it is. How we don't defend the rights of the unborn, which I believe in. How we don't believe in moral absolutes anymore. Absolutely. But we just want to complain about it. Because we'd rather stand in judgment over culture. We get angry, like Moses did. Some of it's a righteous anger. Moses comes down the mountain and he sees the people who have left and forgotten the one true God and he gets angry and he breaks the tablets. He burns the idol, breaks it up into bits, puts it in the water and says, now drink your rebellion. He gets angry. You ever feel angry about seeing the way the culture is going around you, how things are changing? Some of us, we just want to make a point. Like we, figure, we think of ourselves as the figure of Moses coming down the mountain, carrying the tablets, and we're going to throw them down and break them to make a point to people around us. Some of us love to make points on Facebook. You know who you are. You breaking the tablets on Facebook every day or on the Twitter. You love to make a point because you want people to know that they're wrong and you're right. Some of us, we would rather fight. We're not accommodators, we're judges. We wanna fight. We want to engage the people who are disobeying God and going the opposite way and fight them where we're just itching for a scuffle. And we are armed, man, bring it. We are master debaters, online, in person, we are ready. Politics, morality, church, we've we've got our guns loaded and we are ready to go. The problem with this option is that in this story, you and I aren't Moses. In this story, you and I are Aaron at best, but we're certainly the people that are down the mountain, down on the ground from the mountain, throwing our own party, making our own idols, The Bible says there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one here is worthy of throwing a rock because we all live in the glass house. 
when Jesus finds the woman who is rightfully getting ready to be stoned for committing adultery, he walks up and he doesn't say what you're doing is wrong. He writes something mysterious in the sand and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You and I do not deserve to be in the seat of judgment. There is only one who is righteous. There is only one who is perfect. And while every single sin against him is worthy of eternal and infinite punishment, we are all on the, that wrong side of the punishment. None of us are born with the stones in our hand. We are all born ready to be stoned because of our sin, because of our rebellion. We are the people. When Moses called the Levites to kill the rebels and afterwards intercedes with God and God, he says to spare the people and God says, I'm still gonna have to visit their sin upon them. And he says afterwards that God had to send a plague upon them as punishment for what they had done. All of that had to be done because justice had to be served. And you or I are in that crowd that justice had to be served upon. But here's the good news for you and for I. That that justice that you and I and everybody around us was rightfully owed, one who was greater than Moses stepped in and took the bullet for you and for me. You know how Jesus told those people not to stone that woman because she deserved to be stoned according to the law. You know how he could tell them, hey, let he who without sin to cast the first stone and tell her to go your own way, your sins are forgiven. He could do that not because he was some nice guy and he said don't worry about it. He could do that because he knew he came to earth for one person, one reason, and that was to take the penalty for her to be stoned for her. This is he came to be stoned for you and for me to be killed upon the cross and to take the punishment that you and I rightfully deserved for us. This morning, if you have never placed your faith and trust upon Jesus, maybe you've thought, hey, I'm gonna go my own way, or you thought, hey, somehow my good deeds, my righteousness is gonna get me, make me okay with God, I pray this morning you would see that that is never sufficient. Neither of those are ever sufficient. And it's only by Jesus taking the bullet for you that you are made righteous, that the judgment that rightfully is owed to you is poured out upon somebody else as a substitute for you. And I pray you'd put your faith and trust in him this morning. Some of us, we accommodate. Some of us, we judge. Maybe we mix those in together all the time. How do we respond to the people that are going to hell in a handbasket around us when it seems like the world is going to hell in a handbasket around us? We can accommodate, we can judge. Or if you understand that Jesus Christ came to take your penalty for you, then the third option is you can humbly intercede for the people around you. We see that in Moses in the second part. In verse 30 and 32 that Allison read for us this morning, 
Moses said, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sins. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses comes and he prays to God. He stands in the gap for the people who have sinned against God and turned against him down the mountain as they went their own way. He was angry enough that he smashed the tablets, but now he's back with God and he says, God, please, please forgive them. And he stands in the gap. And you and I can humbly intercede like Moses did if and only if we understand that Jesus interceded for us and is interceding for you and I now. And if that's true, then here's what we can do. Just like Moses did, see what he did in this passage. He says, you've sinned a great, uh, he says, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But he, then he lumps himself into their place. But don't just blot them out, but blot me out if you take them out as, as well. He says, I'm accepting personal responsibility. I'm identifying with the people around me. And you and I can be free to identify with a world that we see, feel is going to hell in a handbasket around us. We can identify with them if we understand that we are one of them. The only thing standing between us and them is not your righteousness and how many times you've read the Bible and how many times you go to church, but the only thing that differentiates you from anybody else is the fact that Jesus Christ stood in the gap for you and you've placed your faith and trust in him and accepted him as Lord, and that's the only thing that differentiates you from them. That helps you identify with the people. It gives us the humility as we live life with our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members. If you and I understand that to our core, we will not stand in a seat of judgment over the people around us thinking that we're better than them because we know that we're not. We can identify them and we can intercede with them. Our relationship with God is an invitation to us to intercede for them. In this, in this exchange with, with Moses, at one point, Moses, Paul, uh, sorry, at one point God says, hey, get out of my way and let me kill them and I'm gonna start over and make you a great nation. And whenever he says that, it's kind of hard to understand, like, well, God, what's, what's God going on here? What's, what's he doing? And what he's doing is he's giving Moses an opportunity and an invitation. He's saying, look, this is rightfully what they have coming to them. I'm inviting you to intercede for them, when you and I see, if we understand the depths that we have been pulled from, when you and I see the people, the individuals around us that seem to be going to hell in a handbasket, well, that should cause us to do, it should be an invitation for us to intercede and stand in the gap for them. So how do we do this? Here's how we do this in our culture and in our day. First of all, we have to identify the idols that are around us. It was very clear when Moses came on the mountain what their idol was. They had crafted it, right? But in America, we don't worship physical idols like that. We worship all the kind of idols that we already mentioned and thousands and thousands more. 
And so if you're gonna try to intercede and stand in the gap for the people around you, the people in your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, instead of just saying, man, look how crazy, the crazy things are doing and the crazy way they live and it's so far from God and you just totally dismiss it, start to ask the question, what are they worshiping? What are they placing faith and trust in other than God? What is it they're being tempted to put their faith and trust in to find their sense of security, their sense of value, and their sense of worth and their identity from. Identify that. Start to look around you and say, like, what are, what, are the, what are the baseline things that people are buying into, the lies to worship other than God? So I think about this all the time with people that I'm around. I think about the Myrtle Beach area in general. I think one of the, one of the biggest idols that we worship in Myrtle Beach is the thirst for the endless summer. Everybody who lives here, uh, very few of us like grew up here. Most of us came here from, some, from somewhere else. And we came here because of the dream of golfing or surfing or going to the beach or, what, or partying or whatever. Like whatever it is that you associate with summer, you came here searching for that endless summer, that summer that would never, ever end. Because you're like, hey, I had fun on vacation. It'd be cool to live here. But just like any other idol, it never delivers on what it promises. And you get here and there's only so many rounds of golf you can play or parties that you can attend or times you can go to the beach until you say, is this all there is? And so you tend to think like, hey, Myrtle Beach is a crappy place. I need to go somewhere else. But you're just following another idol to another place, to another place, to another place. So we should look around and identify the idols that are around us. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is at work actively in your coworkers and in your neighbors and in your family's life to entice them, to blind them to the true gospel, to cause them to worship anything else. So how do we identify them? Ask questions to the people around you. Get to know them. Find out what's going on in their life. Find out what motivates them and stirs them. But then we don't just identify the idols around us. We intercede for individuals around us. Think about the people that you work with and that you serve with, that you, that you uh, are your neighbors and your family members, people that you work out with. Pray for your heart. If you're prone to accommodate and just go with the flow because you don't want to make waves, pray for your heart that God would help you not to simply accommodate. If you're prone to judge, pray that God would help you not to simply judge. Pray that God would open the eyes of the people around you to see the truth of the gospel. And know that as we pray that God would open the eyes of the people around us, that our confidence that God would do that in their lives is not based upon anything other than the fact that he wants to save them. He sent Christ for them, to save them. He poured out the punishment that that they owed just as you and I owed. He poured out that punishment upon Jesus Christ for them. And then our expectation of that answer, that he will open their eyes, comes only with an assurance of our own position in Christ. Moses said, God, would you forgive them? He had a confidence that God would listen to him. And our confidence that God would listen to us is not based upon you and I and our greatness. It's based only upon the fact that we come in the name of Jesus, his son. 
Then lastly, and we're done. We should identify the idols around us. We should intercede for the individuals around us. Sort of a similar way that Moses says, hey, would you blot my name out if you can't forgive them? Uh, Paul says in Romans, I wish that I was cut off if it would save them. Do you really care for the people around you? That's just one question, by the way. Do you really care? Pray that God would give you a heart to care and love for them the way that he loves them. Which leads us to lastly, we incarnate the gospel into their lives. To incarnate means to take, uh, is what Jesus did whenever he left heaven and he became a man and took on flesh. We flesh out the gospel into the lives of the people around us. We do that by developing authentic friendships with people. Look, Christianity is not Amway. It's not something we're trying to sell people and get them bought into so that we can get some sort of notch on our belt or make some money. Develop authentic friendships with people. Actually care for people, not like you're trying to sign them up to, for Amway or some sort of marketing scheme. Develop authentic, real friendships with them and model the sacrificial love of Jesus to them. That's one of the best ways you can incarnate the gospel to them is by modeling the sacrificial love of Jesus to them. Greater love has no man than this, and he gives up his life for his friend. Jesus gave his life for you, and that empowers you to turn around and give your life to the people around you for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his glory in their lives. And then lastly, find ways to bridge from their assumptions to the gospel. Find ways that you see like, hey, they're worshiping, these people around me, they're worshiping their body, so they're always, I'm at the gym, so this is like, you know, this is kind of, you know, my life. I'm at the gym all the time, I'm getting buffed. This, this, this doesn't happen accidentally. And, and I'm at the gym, and I see the people around me who are doing the same thing, and, and I'm like, wow, I see like, hey, they're worshiping, it doesn't mean, just because you go to the gym doesn't mean you're doing this, but the, hey, the people around me I'm talking to, they're worshiping their bodies because they think that that's how they get their identity and value and worth from. But they're always disappointed because their, their body can never be perfect enough or right enough. And so I find ways to bridge when their disappointment to the truth of the gospel, to what really satisfies, the thing that they can worship that is truly worthy of all their worship and will not be a vain, empty idol. That's what we wanna do. What do you do when all hell breaks loose around you? It seems like every single person around you is going to hell in a handbasket. We join Jesus the one who is greater than Moses, who sacrificially interceded for us, we join him in that sacrificial inter intercession for the people around us. Identify idols, we intercede for them, and we incarnate the gospel to them so that they would see the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. The only thing that's worthy of worship the only thing that will not return empty in the end. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. 
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.